Hey, again, it's Andy. That's who I am. And I'll have you know that I am a moderate kisser. I am a moderate kisser. You're like, what does that even mean? I'm not talking about romantically. I'm talking about when it comes to public signs or showing of affection. I'm kind of, uh, I like to hug and occasionally I, I have a kiss. You know, I come from a Catholic Irish Lithuanian family from the East Coast. And there's, there's a lot of kissing that happens in that context. A lot of kissing when it comes to seeing each other on the cheek. Uh, of course, I love to kiss my kids, but occasionally when I get together with my friends, my buddies, there's a kiss on the cheek that happens. And sometimes you may have experienced, there's a lot of head kissing in my tribe. A lot of head kissing. And um, this is true. That's who I am, you know? And, and you may think, and actually, Andy, I don't think you're a moderate kisser. I think you're pretty liberal. In, my, in this context, you're a, bit, you're a bit of a progressive when it comes to kissing. And, and to that I say nay, I'm not a, I, I've been in places, I've been in a college in University of Delaware that pulls in a lot of different communities, particularly those from the Mediterranean region, Italians, some Greeks, uh, in the Mesopotamia region, I made a lot of Jewish friends, great people, great culture. And they were some liberal kissers. I'm talking about my friend. Uh, Marnie, Danielle, Cheryl, like I met them first time I met Danielle. Oh, how you doing? Right on the lips, mwah, like that. Nothing romantic. Was the first kiss, wasn't the last. I mean, I'd be coming back from statics. How was statics today, Andy? Mwah, right there. I'm like, just getting used to it. That's how it was in that time. That's how it was. And I learned a lot about it, and there's something beautiful about that. In Scripture, it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul says it four times. Did you get a kiss today? Did anybody get a kiss today? Oh, you actually did, actually. You did get a kiss. You got a kiss. If you did not get a kiss, are you living in violation of Scripture? Are we living in violation of Scripture? No. No, because we understand, as uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, he's the Bible Project guy, among many other things, that there's a culture gap between now and 2,000 years ago if you're reading the New Testament and or 3,500 years ago or plus some if you're going back to the Old Testament. There's a cultural gap. And in, in the midst of these cultural gaps, there still exists transcendent messages. That as a people of God, we are be marked by an ethic of warm welcome and God's divine hospitality, creating space for strangers to know that they're friends and ultimately family. That's, that's, that's the deal. And so, yes, there are... Some Mediterranean cultures today that still love to kiss, and that's great. And we have our own enculturation when it comes to the church. I mean, we have different ways. The Christian side hug, that became very <laughs> real to me when I started coming back to the church, this Protestant church. Like, it's the thing, the side hug, you know? But we have other things that we don't even name, you know? Like, this is a thing, you don't even know this is called the open arm outfit praise. I've seen it both men and women, though women and men do it differently. When they, women see each other, it's just like, oh, that thing, look at those shoes or that dress. Guys, we do it too. We, we, go, we go more diagonal, like, dang, brother, looking good. That is the open arm, like, being praised. It's the thing that we do. Yes, it's true. You'll, now you'll start seeing it all the time. And, and then there's one of my favorites that I just think is one of the greatest expressions is just that, kind of that tough knot. 
mm, you know, like that thing, you know what I'm talking about? When you see somebody cross room, with one little gesture of your neck, you're communicating acceptance and approval, and then I've got your back and you've got mine. Try it out. Give me a nod. You know it's dope. It's the nod is so powerful. And maybe, I don't think it's just a guy thing. I, I, at least when I came from the East Coast, it wasn't just a guy thing. Try it. Give me a nod. I want like a strong one. Like, and even give yourself a little mm when you do it. Mm. No, Mary, you're laughing at them. I want to see the nod. I'm asking you for a nod right now. Come on. There it is. Give each other a nod. Like, look at each other. Do it up. Yeah, it's so strong. Yes. Warm, welcome, and hospitality. But it's enculturated. It's enculturated. We don't think too much about it, the culture gap, uh, when we read scripture. Um, we don't think about it. But there are times where the culture gap or at least what we read in Scripture can be a bit more confusing. And that's what we're coming upon today, where you're like, yeah, I understand the transcendent message about the kiss. I don't need to kiss everybody. Uh, but when you read a passage like today, you're like, ugh, that's confusing. I don't like that. So let's, let's just read the first line of our Scripture today. We're in Ephesians, what I thought would be a really exciting, fun summer series, and it's had some topics into it. We've gone there. The first words are slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. I asked this in the E! News today. I think it's worth a popcorn conversation, if you're willing. What comes to mind when you read that term slave or think of the term slavery? What pops into your mind? Oppression. Sweatshops. Laboring against your will. Any historical moments that come to mind when you think of that term? U.S. history. World history. Yeah. Okay, we're good. That was a popcorn moment. This is a scriptural, again, moment where the cultural gap is confusing. And we can easily fall into the temptation of, like, TikTok truism slash Twitter, now X, right? It's called X, like, theology, where we can read something like this and just think, okay, the church endorses slavery or... The church is just wanting to amass power, and you start going down that rabbit trail of like, yep, and they're the reason why we have all the wars. See, the gospel is certainly clear. The gospel is clear. The scriptures are complicated. They are complicated. I mean, Paul uses a term that he is worse than a slave. That word is doulos in the Greek. He's a, he's a prisoner of the gospel, literally in prison, uh, in a Roman prison, but he says he's actually a prisoner of Jesus. He also uses that word slavery elsewhere in Scripture about our condition. He says in Romans 6, and hear me out when you hear all this. What we're doing is establishing a theology of first century slavery. Jack, don't walk out of the room, buddy. You got this. <laughs> he says, but now you've been set free from the slavery of sin and have become slaves of God. You've been free from the slavery of sin, Romans 6.22, are now slaves of God. So wait a minute, we're slaves? We're meant to be slaves as Christians? And this is a theology of slavery, which is actually very equivocal to a theology of freedom. 
But the truth is, yeah, we are slaves of God. We have given our lives to God because God has given his lives to us. That in then Christ's life and his wooing us to the cross, just like that last line was like, your love sustained me before I even knew. Is that what the line? That Christ was washing our feet, loving us, serving us through his gospel life and through the action of the spirit today. And then through his death on that Roman cross, he pays our slave debt. He pays our debt. He frees us. And by the resurrection of the power of the Holy Spirit, he he guides us home and empowers us to guide others home, gives us a place to abide, to know and know others in the midst of community. He feeds us, protects us, speaks to us. Uh, And he's... He's not an oppressive God. He's the first to serve. He's a servant. And we are called to serve one another uh, as we give our lives to God freely. It's a freeing mutual bondage that bonds us together. This is a theology that we're working in. I'll talk a little bit about our socio-political, socio-cultural goggles later. But this is a theology of slavery. Jesus says in John 1, 5, 1, 5, 15, 15, that I no longer call you servants, the same word as slaves, but I call you friends because a servant or slave doesn't know the master's business. Everything I have is yours. I'm communicating everything. Everything I want you to do is out of a place of freedom as you give your life to me. This is about giving our lives to one another and discovering something more than being servants. He says, he calls us friends. I no longer call you servants, but friends. Because we've already given our lives to another. We belong to God and one another. And in the midst of this mutual friendship, this mutual bond, there's a freedom to serve one another. So the way that we can look at it is this way. Just so I establish our theology of slavery, we are going to visit Civil War at times. We're going to talk about ancient slavery. We're going to go there. But I just want to establish this framework that we are free Or actually, we're slaves, and we're free. We are slaves to either um, our own evil desires, selfish desires. We're slaves of worldly complicities. We're slaves to demonic forces. Or we're slaves to Jesus' love, mercy, justice, righteousness, and grace. The reframe of that would be we're either free to hurt others and therefore hurt God and ultimately hurt ourselves, or we are free to love God and others and love ourselves. Imagine that. That's the theology that we're working in when we talk about slavery, the transcendent theology. But we still got to go back into the historical slavery a bit because when our modern, Western, and yes, American ears hear the word slavery, where someone said U.S. history and then someone said world history, we'll go there. Uh, there's so much happening in our heads and our imaginations, that our, our mind's eye can't help but experience the textbooks and the images and the conversations and the movies and the family stories and the places that we visited, the conversations that we've had when it comes to the saddest moment in our American history. Who's here as American? Okay, I feel like contextually we're all in the right spots. The saddest moment, and that's dealing with the transatlantic slave trade that happened in Britain, which then happened in the establishment of the colonies, the saddest chapter in our national history. And the motivation of it was wealth and productivity, all put on the backs of African slaves who were kidnapped from their nation. 
And it's not just that that we think about, but many of us think about the horrendous domino effect of those actions, of that ethnic subjugation, discriminatory laws that happened post-abolishment, lynching in mass numbers, unfair social practices that created uh, differentials, like differentials in the GI Bill during the World Wars, differentials in real estate like redlining, segregation and inequitable funding to different government agencies, which all created a domino effect that many feel today because there is a statistical wealth gap, ethnically. Getting, there's no way getting around that. That's what we think about when we hear that term. And I want to acknowledge that, and I don't want to dismiss that, and we're going to speak to that. But we do have to understand that is one era of slavery, and this, has, this era that Paul's talking to has differences and similarities. This isn't, what, you know, when people like do, this is about work ethic. This is about how you work under your boss. It's like that, that totally relegates and is kind of a dismissive conversation. This isn't just a work ethic, getting your emails done and telling your boss you're doing okay. There may be some overlap there, but this is a larger conversation. I think when we think about slavery, we think about the heroes in our modern concept. We think about Frederick Douglass. We think about John Newton and William Wilberforce, particularly early on in the translated slave trade. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks, MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. We also have the many voices who use the scriptures to validate slavery. We think about that. We also think about those who didn't use their voice at all. Well, these are all the things that come to mind. And again, we don't want to dismiss that. In fact, we want to speak to it. But I, I do want to say, let's, let's take that and put that here for a minute so that we can go visit the slavery that Paul's talking to so that we can unearth some of the transcendent thought and messages in that conversation, which speaks to, uh, gosh, it's not even 200 years ago, 150 years ago, as well speaks today. Because that's what matters. That's what matters. See, while the African slave trade was about one ethnic group capturing another and enslaving them, uh, the slavery during ancient Greco-Roman times was different. Scholars speculate that about 30 to 50%, 30 to 50%, a third to a half of the Roman population were slaves. Slaves. Some of them were prisoners of war. Uh, but a lot of them was bond slavery, which does happen, not in the U.S., where there is a social safety net, but bond slavery. And this is where you're working, you're a blacksmith or a sculptor or a fisher, fish, fisherman, you're uh, agriculture, and you've gone under. Taxes, which, by the way, those people were oppressed by taxes. Sometimes scholars say 50 to 80% of their income. It's, it's disgusting. It's rough. And, and you're taxed into slavery, and you can't afford to provide for your family. So what do you do? You try to find a wealthy friend, and you sell yourself to that friend. You become a bond slave. You sell yourself, you sell yourself, you sell your family, you sell um, your possessions, that person, with the hopes that you can, one, be sustained and then earn back your freedom, which did happen at times. The technical term for that was manumission. So you did, you did it out of your own volition, and there was hopes that you, out of your own power, could earn your money back. Differences. There are still vast similarities. Vast similarities. You and your family were still properties of others. And yeah, that was a practice that people 
Unfortunately, women and children were considered property, but you became property of another. You had no legal rights. And your master could do awful things to you. And some did because they're evil. Unwise because this is your possessions, so to speak, which is even icky to say, but yeah, people are corrupt. So you were property. One human was a property of another. So in those very real dynamics, i.e. people being a belonging to another person, why didn't Paul abolish slavery? That's the question. Why, why wouldn't Paul abolish slavery? Why did, you know, if there's these, discuss, these disgusting dynamics. He's got the message. Imago Dei, the message. He's, he's in jail. It doesn't seem like he has any problem with being in jail. We know that he was later crucified for his faith. So why not abolish slavery? When I was in Israel... Uh, I learned about Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean, this was around 86, roughly 50 years before Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, but still same time period. Judas the Galilean uh, had a tax revolt where he gathered hundreds of people to not pay taxes. The governor of Syria, which uh, Palestine to the Romans was under Syria, which included the Holy Land and Judea, they wanted to enact another census. If you know anything about Christmas time, there was a census. They wanted to enact another census so they can gather numbers, they can figure out their, who can pay taxes. I want to know how many we got so I can know how much we got. And so Judas the Galilean said, nope, we're not doing that. They didn't pay taxes. They didn't register. In fact, they began to burn the houses and livestock of people who did, who were complicit to that, which is really violent. And so what did Rome do? They crucified the, Judas the Galilean and his rebels by the hundreds. Just crucifixes all along the Via Maris, which is this road from Sephoris, which is this little city, four miles, uh, I believe, I can't remember, northeast of, of uh, Nazareth. So Jesus probably did a lot of work there. We know his dad did because he was around 10 or 11 years old at the time. Crucified people by the hundreds. Rome, an authoritarian dictatorship, has no problem crucifying protesters, wiping them out completely. You've got the message, yeah, let's protest. Defy the system, Paul, and we likely would not have the church today. This is not what we know to be a democracy. There's one person at the top, and that person has the freedom to do whatever they want to keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was enforced by really violent power. Paul's sitting with that tension. Moreover, Paul's sitting with the tension that, just like Judas the Galilean, whenever you do protest, particularly if you don't have a voice, that protest will lead to violence. If you don't have a voice, you have your fist. You'll kill others. That's exactly what Judas the Galilean did. He was burning his own people's homes, as well as trying to kill Romans. So Paul's dealing with that other tension. When you don't have a voice, violence is the next call. See, all the modern heroes that we think about, modern, I'm talking about the last, the modern society, the last couple hundred years, William Wilberforce, even Martin Luther King Jr., they existed within a democracy where they could use their voice to create change. Paul's using his voice here, but in a way that plants the seeds of change. So what would you say? If you say nothing... 
Do you scream abolishment? I want you to take a moment and consider what would you say in those times if those are your options? What would you say to one another? Before we get in the sermon, I actually think we should like talk with our friend. It seems like you're all interested. It's very interested. So what would you say? Talk, take a moment right now. I'm going, to take a, I'm going to take five and just talk to your neighbor. What would you say? What would you communicate in those times to small house church communities that apparently have both slaves and masters? Go ahead. All right, take another 30 seconds, or I'm going to start kissing heads. Take another 30 seconds, or I'm going to start kissing heads. All right. So we're going to read what Paul says, and then we're going, to exp- we're going to exposit it a bit. And granted, I'm a limited person. I'm not saying my answer is the only answer, and I recognize there's complications in this, but we're going to dive in. Um, Paul says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That term means king, the king. In fact, that term comes up four times. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So it seems like Paul's saying you don't just do it in order to gain favor so that you can change their mind. That may happen, but that's not the goal of this. Ultimately, not the goal of this. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Stop right there. So when we read this passage, it's easy to think, okay, he's just calling people to be a doormat here and to enable their masters in the violent violence. Is Paul mincing words here? And, and what's true about this passage, what needs to be mentioned is he's, Paul's saying, you're not obeying them. You're obeying God. Your true master, he says it four times, is the Lord and no one else. No one else. Because Christ is the true master. And this will matter in a moment. It doesn't really scratch the itch, but I'm just going to keep going. That means we're accountable to the Lord when it comes to our day-in-day work and everyday decision. Because in this new humanity, this one humanity that we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, in this oneness, we, we are honored by God and we're called to honor every person, including our master. Because this master does not control our well-being, our overall well-being, does not control our destiny. And in this embittering Again, for some, not all in that time, in that context, and then this embittering ancient Greco-Roman bond slavery that existed in a dictatorship, remember Rome, not America, 
these are actually the seeds alongside Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of the nonviolent resistance that's rooted in love. These are the seeds. It's, as Tim Mackey, he says, he calls it, it's the revolution that revolutionarizes revolutionaries. I don't know if I said that right, but it's the revolution that revolutionarizes revolutionaries. It's this first point that the violent framework of humans owning one another will stop. It's not an off-with-the-master's-head framework. It's not meeting violence with violence, but it's meeting violence with God-given, self-given dignity to say that, no, 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 you don't own me. I belong to the Lord, and I will serve wholeheartedly the Lord. And from that place, you're going to witness God do something. How do you think abolishment in the colonies started? Through a couple of thinkers? My guess is it it started from those ancient spirituals where people who were enslaved recognized their God-given right, their God-given dignity. And there was a couple people who saw that and were like, holy crap, their eyes were opened. People who knew they were someone, not a belonging. This is huge, to know that you're someone and not a belonging. The cross is where this back-and-forth violence stops and understanding God-given dignity. And that matters for each and every person we talk about today. God only owns me, whether they know it or not. God only owns you, whether you know it or not. And I've given up my life to God for you and for others. And by God's grace and power, you're going to see God do something. That's what we're talking about here, about knowing whose you are and who you are, a phrase we love, the phrase that ultimately is what is amazing. And God is working. Let's look at what Paul writes to the masters. In the same way that he spends a lot of ink on husbands, more ink on the husbands than the wives, spends ink on the parents and less on the property children, he spends some ink, shocking ink, not a lot, because it's so potent to the masters. Verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Some translations say do the same thing. Whatever I just said to the slaves, you do the same thing. Master's like, what, you're, you're putting me in the same spot as a slave? Paul's like, yes, I am. That's probably the most countercultural statement of that time. Do not threaten them. Do not threaten them. Abandon any form of violence, because when you do that, you're treating them like property. They're not property. They're gods. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. See, in a time of abolishment, in a time where abolishment, rather, would, would come to a violent end, Paul, in these statements, is undoing the very basis of slavery, the very basis of slavery. And the heroes that we know are, throughout history are taking the seeds that Jesus planted and that Paul was cultivating, and they're seeing the blooming fruit of those seeds, or the budding of that seeds, and they are the ones who communicate that history, which changed history over time. The seeds are planted on level ground. It's level ground before the cross. There is a new humanity, and it's a one humanity. We're united. That's the two main things, is that we all belong. In fact, that's the second point. We belong to one another, but we do not treat one another as a belonging That's what's being communicated here. You belong to you. We all belong together. We are united, but we never treat one another as a a belonging. That's what Mother Teresa said. She the problem, she diagnosed the world's ills this way. She said the problem with the world is is that we forgot that we belong to one another. 
We belong to one another, but you should not treat one another as belongings. So this is the part where we're going to reflect some, some prayer time. Think about that person that has hurt you. This is going to be a hard one. Think of that person that's hurt you. In Christ, in Christ, you are united with that person. Now, I don't know if that person's redeemed or not. That's not me saying that person is saved by God. That's just me saying that in Christ and through God's power, you are united with that person, whether that person is far, far away or as close as someone who's hurt you so bad, that in Christ, you and the mystery belong to that person. Doesn't mean you obey that person. Doesn't mean you have to listen to toxic messages. Doesn't mean, again, that they are saved by God. It doesn't mean you have to get back together with that person, by the way. But if that God redeems that person, or has already redeemed that person. In Christ, we belong to that person. Think of the person you've hurt. Think of the person you hurt, or maybe people that you mistreat. And you can apply this in the workplace. There's people that we just kind of like treat, or sometimes just walking on, I'm not gonna go there. Think of a person that you've hurt recently or in the past, whether it's near or far. It's the same mystery. In Christ, we belong to that person, that we are united. Doesn't mean you reconnect. I do love the 12-step program of making amends, but it has to be appropriate and well done, and I would prescribe having somebody walk you through that. Not this sermon. But the goal is understanding the the goal for humanity, is that we are meant to be united. Common unity, community. And the way that lasting change happens The way that that is communicated is through small Jesus communities that come together and demonstrate this type of unity that says, despite any differences that we share, we belong to one another. That person you like the least in this room, you belong to that person if you're in this room. You do. That's the goal. You belong to that person, but they're not a belonging, and you're not a belonging either. It's that type of living and that type of unity where our prayers become our protest and that our actions will change policies even if the policies don't change. I would say this week, reflect on the book of Philemon. It does a really good job of like, what is Paul talking about in these five verses? And it encapsulates it in a small one-chapter letter. It's worth noting, and this is the third point, that in a time where slavery is possible, establishing a brotherhood or sisterhood between slave and master makes slavery impossible. Now, we have some, I want to, I still have some stuff in me. I just want to name that. So I'm not going to end the message. It feels like I kind of decrescendoed. I'm not done. Because when I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about questions. Um, and I, I chose a teaching format today, which we haven't done all the time. And some questions that came to mind is like, and maybe you don't have this question, but I'm always prepared for one or two of them, is how do you have questions like these where you talk about different principalities without feeling sociopolitically like explosive? How do you have those? And here's what I'll say. I think there's like a really wise answer for that, but I don't think I have it. The truth is I, I think people will feel it. 
In 2024 upon us, too many people have too much riding on the political bus. Way too much. We do. We do. I mean, as I said earlier in the series, we would be remiss. I would say we'd be foolish. I'll use that word. We'd be hanging out with Lady Folly and not Lady Wisdom if we ignored the different powers and spiritual influences, demonic, collective evils that existed within slavery, both in Paul's time and in our modern history and today, that those powers that are racism, those are principalities, that are classism, principalities, even sexism in the midst of this. We would be foolish to ignore those, but there are other powers that exist at, at work. Politicism is a power at work right now where we will silence kingdom messages because it rubs and grates against my socio-political sensibilities. We're talking kingdom conversations here that will have some overlap if we talk about it. We would be foolish to think that our party is going to be the answer to society's ills. You got to get rid of that. We can change policies even if the changes, policies don't change to the small Jesus community. And we also must take serious note. See, I'm like excited. We have to take serious note of the principality that is undergirding all these conversations that we're having today, whether it's slavery today that exists, and we'll talk about that, whether it's 150 years ago plus some, plus that 200 years, plus the sum of the translatic slave trade, whether it's the ancient Greco-Roman slavery, or whether it's the slavery seed in all in history, we have to recognize that decisions that propel ancient Greco-Roman bond slavery, decisions that provoked Atlantic slave trade, as well as induce so many decisions that we make each and every day, which include our housing, our time and our schedule, no time, no schedule, how much we invest in, how we, quote, save, what a steal I got for this shirt, how we do or more likely not participate in kingdom efforts, no time, no money. And those that certainly persuade our public policies, which includes voting, have almost, almost a lot to do with monetary and material motivation, what Jesus calls mammonism. Money is a principality that motivates these principalities. Think about it. Wealth and productivity, slavery, racism. It's, that, that's, that's it. Humans as a means to having belongings rather than belonging together. That's something we have to take note of. That our wealth and, and, and productivity pushes ourselves whether we know it or not. Someone mentioned it today. They said uh, sweatshops. Sweatshops. And propels us to treating others to belongings whether we see a face or not. And to end, I, I do want to read one example today. Um, and I could, like, try to pawn it off as my own, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to read it from the book, and I'll try to read it with inflection. This is from John Mark Comer's book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's something that stuck out to me when we were reading it. And as people have mentioned, and as you can allude, slavery is alive and well today. Oh, wrong page. A few years ago, I, as the author speaking, was shocked and deeply disturbed when I learned about the dark underbelly of globalization. Globalization just means that we're in a global economy, that you can buy goods globally very easily. In fact, our economy works on that. 
Uh, I had no clue that a huge chunk of items in my home and life were made unjustly, if not with full-on human trafficking and child labor. Take the garment industry, for example, which has radically changed since the madman era. In the 1960s, 95% of our clothes were made in America, and Americans spent an average of 10% of their annual budget on clothing and owned very few items. Today, only 2% of our clothing is made in the U.S., and we spend around 4% of our annual budgets on it, a decrease of 500%. So we spent a lot of money on that in the past, and now it's decreased 500%. How did our clothing get so cheap? Well, multinational corporations started making our clothes in places like Vietnam and Bangladesh, where government corruption is rife and officials do little or nothing to stop the victimization of workers. Things like minimum wage, healthcare, and unions are alien. They don't exist. Workers are likely to work six to seven days a week in a sweltering factory, often in unsafe conditions with little or no protection. And we're talking about a lot of people here. One in six people in the world work in the garment industry. That's just about south of 1.5 million. And for those who care about feminism, approximately 8% of those workers are women. Fewer than 2% of them make a living wage. No wonder we call it cheap or call that item a steal. That's exactly what it is. It's theft. There's no Robin Hood stealing from the ultra-rich CEO that we love to villainize. We're just stealing from a single mother in Burma just trying to take care of her family. It's easy to post something on Instagram about how there are 28 million slaves in the world today and we need to, quote, end it, or hashtag end it. There's more, by the way. This was written two years ago. That's great, and I'm all for it, genuinely, but many of the clothes we're wearing for our selfie that we took in the device made in rural China, which I know Apple's trying to make moves and moving to India, I want to note that, but still, our phones too, if you're older than an iPhone 13, just know that, are causing it, not ending it. As much as I want to believe slavery is a thing of the past, what were most African-American slaves doing? Farming cotton for clothes. So yeah, there's an estimated, it said 28 there, it's, some people believe it's up to 40, 45 million slaves today through different means, trafficking, debt, bondage, domestic slavery. So how do we abolish that? That's the question. Well, we have to remember that those people that are knitting our shirts belong to us. They belong to you. They belong to me. And we don't get guilty, though we do let it induce a real remorse. And then from our prayers and understanding, we, we make changes as a people, and we talk about this. Amen? So here's some next steps. Here's some next steps. The next steps are giving. To give your life to God. To be baptized. To give your life. We're doing baptisms in Catalina. Another one is to forgive a debt that someone owns you. I mean, I got a guy I gave money to in high school. I still think about it. I just got to give it up. You know what I mean? Just give it. But there's some of us who have some real debts with people, larger debts, family debts. Just forgive that debt. Give it, nail it to the cross. People have hurt you with their words or people have hurt you financially. And then in our consumer culture, to, yeah, give first to others before getting something for yourself. To give thought to where your money is truly going. And to give away those necessities that you haven't really needed to those who do need it. That's something to think about today. I'll probably post that on an Instagram if you want to know that. But that, that is, I believe, the prayer and the next step for our message today. So 
As we close and I invite the band up for one more song, let us pray. So Lord, we just open our eyes, God, to, to, the, to that same beautiful truth, Lord, that we belong to one another. And therefore, treat one another as we want to be treated with the utmost dignity, with the dignity that you treat us, Lord, that help us to see others, not as a means, but as, 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 as your child, Lord, our brother, our sister. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear ways in which our lives can change. I know that if we take steps as a smaller community, Lord, that you will do what only you can do. And yeah, Lord, I pray that people would know that you take steps for them, that you're the God, this loving Father, this just Father who sees us in the midst of our mistakes, who sees us in the midst of our pain, and has created us a home. And Lord, help us to see a home that's created for others and to serve freely. Serve freely, Lord, as you serve us. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.